The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy. Hello again, Murder Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. Welcome back to the Murder Shelf Book Club, where today we'll learn Charles Cullen's fate after his confession at the end of Part 2 of The Good Nurse by Charles Graber. You bet your butt we'll be talking about reforms in hospitals after Charlie was arrested and after a few other examples of rare male medical serial killer types. A touch of housekeeping before we jump in. A shout out to Shinobi Juan Kenobi, who left us a heartfelt review on Apple Podcasts. Shinobi said, I absolutely adore this podcast. The books are wonderfully explained, and the hosts always give a different view into the case than what we're typically shown in the media. If you're into true crime and books about true crime, then what are you waiting for? Give them a listen. Yes, please. Please. And thank you very much. We appreciate you appreciating us. If anyone else wants to reach out, leave us a review, give us some feedback, share your thoughts, please do. We're happy to incorporate them into any episode. So grab a glass of wine or something else you prefer, kick back, and take a listen. All right. So what happened to Charlie? We'll never really know just how many people Charles Cullen killed. He gave us 40, but it could have been as many as 400. And the problem in trying to figure out how many lives he took comes down to sheer numbers and lack of evidence. In confessing to Amy, Tim Braun, and Danny Baldwin, Cullen skipped hospitals even years. And we know he didn't keep a record himself because, you know, it was a lottery. He was not a true angel of death imparting mercy to his victims. He also said that there were no deaths at one of the hospitals that he worked at, Hunterdon, yet five would be found there. But if you've been listening, you know some of the more frustrating bits. Medical records destroyed. Charlie Collins' work history, employment files. All gone. And unfortunately, many victims were too long gone to be autopsied as the Reverend Gall had. Armed with the Pixis and Cerner records and the 175 tips that had come in when a suspect had been identified in the mysterious overdosing deaths at Somerset, Tim and Danny were able to find 26 highly probable victims, and that was just at Somerset alone. It's truly, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. At St. Barnabas, where Charlie first started, he's only been convicted of one murder in five years that he worked there. He would, however, admit that he had not only injected IV bags with insulin at random, but he was also singling out patients as well, sometimes three or four a week. That's definitely more than one victim there. Yeah, in April of 2004, Charlie Cullen pled guilty to 13 murders and two attempted murders. In the state of New Jersey, that got you the death penalty. When he told Amy and the Somerset County detectives in his confession that he wanted to die, we know that he really didn't want to die. Cullen and his attorney 
were able to make a deal to get the death penalty off the table in exchange for further cooperation. Charlie lived at the Somerset County Jail, and it felt like the detectives did too. They painstakingly went through thousands of patient records to help identify who he had murdered and thus give some closure to the families of the victims. It must have felt just like Greystone to him. That was, remember the psychiatric hospital that he was in? He loved going there. Oh, he loved it because the attention was on him. He had a regular schedule. He got to talk about himself most of the time. So, hey. Jail. Yeah. Love it. And he was used to receiving mail, too. So we know that a lot of these serial killer types receive, quote-unquote, fan mail. Frightening. Unfortunately. But in August 2005, Charlie received a different kind of letter. It contained a newspaper clipping from a Long Island community newspaper with a picture of a man he knew, Ernie Peckham. He was Kathy's brother, and Kathy is his ex-girlfriend who became pregnant. So it's, she's the mother of the child that he bore that he never met or doesn't even know. There we go. <laughs> Loop that all back around. So Charlie doesn't know Kathy's brother. Underneath the picture was written, Can you help? Ernie was dying and he needed a kidney. And what better way to play the hero than giving up an organ? Ernie's family was desperate and they were running out of options. But when Charlie threw his kidney donation into the lot, it was an absolute outrage. Many people thought that the nurse who had killed people so indiscriminately now all of a sudden wanted to save one that was sick, it was twisted, and it was downright manipulative. Oh, it's completely manipulative. Uh, Well, the Somerset County Jail's resident chaplain, Reverend Kathleen Roney, said, People looked at Charlie, they looked at what he had done, and they see a monster. And you can understand why, of course. Charles had killed people more than you'll ever know. And the families of the victims are owed something for that. But he isn't a monster. He isn't an angel of death. Charles is much more complicated than that. He is very much more complicated than that, sadly. So, as we know, an inmate considered one of the most notorious serial killers in America, donating an organ. Well, that's going to bring the public eye back around to him. And that spotlight shining down on him, giving him those warm feelings that attention that he craved. That's what he wants. Oh, yeah. But here, he also said that in doing something good, that it would be good for his family. And maybe that good would be reflected on them and that people would treat them better, especially his kids. You always feel bad for the kids. I, yeah, I do. It's heartbreaking for them. And Charlie didn't want them to be known as the kids with the serial killer dad. Well, it's a little late for that, Charlie. Mm-hmm. We know he liked to be helpful, particularly medically, so this endeavor was really suited to him, and it was something that he could do to slack that compulsion that we're sure he's probably feeling. Now, regardless, being a match for Ernie Peckham would be more or less a miracle. Graber equates it to being like in the clearinghouse sweepstakes. Why haven't I won that yet? Because it's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Graber's absolutely right. But guess what? In this case, Charlie Cullum is a perfect match. That's crazy. Uh, Really. Reverend Kathleen Roney and Cullum's defense attorney, Johnny Mask, knew they were in for a bumpy ride and that there's going to be those who are going to do whatever they can to prevent this donation from taking place. A perfect 
match. Unbelievable. I, I, there's something like six. I, I forget there's six there's points six. that have to match. Yeah. My sister is on kidney dialysis, and we didn't find each other until we were adults. My mother had given up a baby for adoption before she married my dad, so she's actually my half-sister. And I had looked into donating a kidney for her. And unfortunately, she had had cancer, so that took her out of the running for kidney donation. So we didn't go further with exploring it. But um, if we'd matched, I would have done it in a heartbeat. I would be interested to see if you're actually a match considering this. Mm -hmm. He was not related to Ernie. Imagine that one. So on March 20th, 2006, Charlie was at the Lehigh County Courthouse in Allentown, PA. For those of you who are in our area, that's not very far away. And one would expect that if Charlie really wanted to donate that kidney, he was going to be on his best behavior. He said he wanted to make amends. But actions do speak louder than words. Oh, and in boy. in this case, it's going to be a bit of both. Here come the actions. <laughs> oh. It almost seemed as if he wanted to bring about more ill will to the community that he had already devastated. He began to recite from memory statements that the judge, William Platt, had made to the press. Unfortunately, we don't know what those statements were, but they are ones that Charlie didn't agree with, and the judge should recuse himself. Charlie continues to repeat, Your Honor, you need to step down. Your Honor, you need to step down. On and on on repeat. Judge Platt threatens to gag and manifold him if he continues. Charlie doesn't stop. Charlie turns himself into a spectacle. Spotlight on him. He has a mask placed over his head to try to muffle his continued mantra. That doesn't do it. Next, they wrap a towel around his face to muffle his screaming words even more. And this is all while the victim's families are trying to read their statements. Charlie doesn't care. I mean, you probably can't see or hear at this point because he just keeps shouting and his face is covered. And the sergeant with the towel wrapped around Charlie's head pulls it even tighter as the judge, like, urges him on to do so. And the jury sits on, just horrified by the spectacle that the courtroom has become. They even try to put tape over his mouth, like in an X. If not for the seriousness of the issue at stake, this would almost be funny. But Judge Platt doesn't even allow him to be found in contempt of court. Like he wants him to sit in his courtroom. And upon sentencing, he still doesn't stop saying, Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor. He says it all the way out of the elevator and continues as the door shut. So, doesn't even hear a sentence, doesn't hear anything, just Your Honor, Your Honor, Your Honor. And a friend of one of Charlie's victims, Julie Sanders, did say, I think he intentionally meant disrespect to everyone in that courtroom. He says he's a compassionate man. He says that he wants to donate a kidney to save a man's life. He wants to do it out of compassion. Where is that compassion now? I needed to say something to him. Does he even know what he did? Does he even know what he's done to our lives? No, and he didn't care. He really could have cared less. That must have been insane to see. It is. He continued to victimize his victims and their families. Even though what he did was terrible, like having that stuff done in a courtroom too, that must have been awful for anyone to see. There's Al Pacino in the courtrooms with that one scene from And Justice for All. Do you remember that movie? Yes. You're Uh out of order. (laughs) You're out of order. You're out of order. Holy mackerel. Out of order. 
he's delusional. Mm-hmm. It's all about him, what he thinks in the moment, and he's not a compassionate man at all. He can delude himself and delude himself into thinking he's a good father and he's worried about his kids, but that's not even true. He's in the spotlight. That's all that matters. Yep. After sentencing, he is brought to the New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey, where he is completely humiliated. In Charlie's mind, it is most likely reminiscent of his Navy days. He is strip searched multiple times. He's given a thin sheet to wear, which is ripped after the first day. He remained naked and surveilled by the guards. He tried not to listen when the guards would joke, It's your time for an insulin shot, Charlie. The guards. Well, that's what happens in prison. It's not supposed to be pleasant. No. The guards would tell him that there was no library, gave him shoes two sizes too small. He was also very much alone. Charlie had always been presented as a tragic figure, you know, suffering through all the stages of his life. But that does not excuse what he did. With the way Charlie viewed himself, he was always the martyr, always the scapegoat. And he still said, I love people. I still care about people. Maybe people don't think that I should be allowed to do something for people that I care about. I can't take back the harm that I've done. But a good thing, why can't I do that? Charlie continued to wait for news regarding if he can donate a kidney or not. And then he complains that he's not getting anything special for this, that they should just take the kidney. No one else stepped forward to donate a kidney to this man. So what's the harm? There's a lot of complaining about somebody needing to take his kidney. I don't want anyone to take my kidney if I don't need to give it up. (sighs) But hey, on the surface, everyone shunned the idea of Charlie's organ donation. Family didn't want it. Everyone who was trying to save Ernie's life that was somehow connected to Charlie Cullen should just stop. Like, stop contacting the family. Don't even bother. Who cares if he's a perfect match? Don't even talk to them again. But then one day, Charlie is taken from his cell, and he's brought to St. Francis Medical Center. He was told that his name was Johnny Quest. He signed his name as Johnny Quest, just as he was told. The nurse looked away. And an hour later, Charlie was down a kidney, and the organ was packed on ice and flown away in a helicopter. Most likely... To Ernie Peckham. Who else? Well, I'm glad Ernie got his kidney. So am I. I am. I hate where it came from, but if someone's going to be a perfect match, you might as well take it. Yep. He was willing. The man needed a kidney. It preserved his life and his story. I'm not going to make light of the situation, but this is not a horror movie where you're going to adopt characteristics of the person that you can talk No, not at all. Exactly. So, a note on Charlie comes from the good nurse author, Charles Graber himself. I had written him and I asked him questions on what it was like working with Cullen day in and day out on this process, you know, given what this guy had done. And he responded, Charles Graber wrote, Cullen scared me too. Not the guy I sat across the table or the courtroom or the prison plexiglass with, usually. Mostly not him, but the guy who occasionally showed up during those meetings. He scared the hell out of me. And later, at one point, yeah, he says, and later, spending years drilling into that space, I scared the hell out of me too. And in the end, I guess it was all in service of scaring the hell out of you. 
<laughs> and yeah, that happened too. Yeah. Uh-huh. He said, truth will do that. So Charles Graber also confirmed some of what we'd heard about that Charlie is actually pretty funny and can be charming. You might like him or feel sorry for him or identify with him, you know, sitting in a holding cell in prison. And then he wrote in parentheses, the epilogue chapter describes the beginning of my journey in that by way of chasing the kidney. He said, but he's a sociopath and there's something else, something less there, depending on how you look at it. Both, I guess. But that's the most frightening thing of them all. It's not about the monsters out there. The other creeps in the dark. It's about us, the monsters within, our own dark creeps waiting for their turn at the wheel. But I know we talked about this in the last episode, but it's the same thing that we covered in Sucking Cast with uh, Molly for Ted Bundy in the one episode where Mm -hmm. um, they were playing, he was naked, and she said something else just showed up, like that wasn't her friend, Ted. Here again, there's nothing. It's like an empty space. That's what Amy said, that metamorphosis he went through, that he wasn't her friend. I I can imagine that you would have to touch base with your own dark creepiness after conversing with Colin to write this book. You'd have to kind of purge that from yourself. Thank you, Charles Graber. Thank you for your input. Yeah, thank you. And I hope he purged himself with his new book, which sounds fascinating, with Mm. the immunotherapy of cancer. That's an incredibly fascinating subject. Yeah, he's, he's really become one of my favorites. So we touched on a a bit in part two about healthcare serial killers, but we did want to elaborate a little bit on the the profile of it. Catherine Ramsland is a professor of forensic psychology at DeSalle University, where she also teaches criminal justice. She has several master's degrees and a PhD. Can she give me a master's degree? Because I don't have any. (laughs) She, She is incredible. She has nonstop productivity. She has written 66 books at last count. If I've missed one, I'm sorry. And one of these terrific books is on serial killers who prey on the vulnerable in healthcare facilities. And the book is called Inside the Mind of Healthcare Serial Killers. And she has done extensive review of the literature on healthcare serial killers. She's looked at doctors, nurses, orderlies, aides, you know, everybody, you name it, EMTs, all of them. And she has divided them up into males and females because the motivations are very, very different there. Oh, yeah. Women healthcare killers tend to be seeking attention and self-worth by causing illnesses in others. Munchausen syndrome by proxy kind of thing going on. They thrive on attention when a code does occur by being the center of the activity and then trying to aid someone in need, which sounds a lot like Colin. We said the FBI had said he was a little bit feminine in his approach to things. Mm -hmm. Now, the males also appear to be very much about control, holding sway over their wards and their patients and their environments. That is also Charlie. He had no control over his environment as a child, so he grows up, and now he wants to have control over life and death on his ward. But he monitored everything through Cerner. I work with people who use Cerner. It's an incredible tool for monitoring patients. It's Mm -hmm. amazing what you can see in a hospital. Yeah. So now Ramsland has developed a very comprehensive checklist, personality traits and behaviors that may call your attention to a situation. 
because these healthcare serial killers can be really hard to identify. So think of these as red flags. A mountain. (laughs) A red mountain. Red mountain. Right. Now, for professional staff at medical facilities, be on the lookout for these red mountains. Bolo. Bolo. All right. Has moved from one facility to another. Yes. Check. (laughs) Right. Charlie's the poster child for this. Nine hospitals in 16 years is associated with, you know, questionable incidents at several facilities. Check. All right. (laughs) Amy called him out on that. Has been involved with some other criminal activities. Check. Stalking. Drunk driving. Right. Secretive or has difficult time in personal relationships. Check again. Kathy and Charlie show. Mm Mm-hmm. A history of mental instability or periodic depression. Check. There you go. Possession of suspected substances is his home or work locker or personal effects. Well, he only had some aspirin, so we can we can take that one away. But I think having what ninety percent so far of everything, we're good. Yeah, for Charlie, but this is for all yeah. of them, right? <laughs> Has lied about personal information, credentials, falsified reports. He not necessarily lied, but covered up the truth about hiring fire deeds. Yeah. Uh, is inordinately enthused about his or her skills, likes to arrive early or stay late for a shift. Check. Check. Right? Has a history of disciplinary problems. Check. Right? Likes to talk about death with colleagues or shows odd behavior related to death excitement or ownership of undue curious strange fantasies. Death related. That's but, really specific. But they're always going to involve death. Well, I think we see that in a couple of the healthcare serial killers that we're going to chat about. Mm-hmm. High incidence of code blues or deaths on his or her shifts. Was that 22 in a month? <laughs> <laughs> right. Inconsistent statements when asked about these incidences taking place. Or just don't say anything at all. You can't prove it. Can't prove it is probably a dead giveaway. That's Not Red Mountain. Normal, innocent person would say. <laughs> exactly. And trust your gut. Yeah, trust that. Yeah, if you think something's going on here, it probably is. Now, for families, friends who are visiting loved ones in a hospital or facility, you know, you're not going to necessarily pick up on they're doing something in their personnel files and things like this. But you still might pick up on some of these kinds of things. And if we hear my dog puddles in the background, he's barking at red flags, too. Oh, Cuddles is into it, huh? Really into it tonight. All right, then. The nurse or this this person seems to crave attention. Now, the nurse, not the patient, is craving attention from you. Mm-hmm. Likes to predict when someone's going to die. That's scary. I wouldn't feel too comfortable about that. Uh-uh. Makes odd comments or jokes about killing patients or being jinxed. Do a lot of people do that? Fortunately, no. That's why when they do it, it's significant. A red flag. (laughs) Tries to prevent others from checking on the patients. You know, pulls those screens. I mean, sometimes it's for privacy issues, and that's fine. But Charlie would do that when he was basting his turkeys, as people called it. Mm -hmm. Rubbing, (laughs) cleaning up the patients and rubbing them with lotion. Sorry. (laughs) He did call it that. It keeps to him or herself, prefers shifts with fewer colleagues or supervisors, which is usually the night shift. The night shift, yes. Mm -hmm. Appears to have a personality disorder. (laughs) We've all met some of these people. But 
in relationship to these other things going on. Maybe a person has a substance abuse problem. Again, their behavior can be a little bit off. And if there is a death, they seem to be hanging around, you know, like they're inordinately excited or hanging around when a death has taken place. So those are your red flags. Be on the lookout. And if we need a checklist, we can post one for you. Absolutely. We can put it up on our www.murdershelfbookclub.com and it'll, it'll be there. So now we're going to get into our male healthcare serial killers. We have a few examples that we'd like to share with you. As we discussed, and in correlation to Catherine Ramsland's profile on these types of killers, 99% of all medical serial killers are women. So Charlie is an exception. He is rare. He's in the 1%, but we did find a few more. Some other names that we stumbled across before getting into our three were Benjamin Dean, Stefan Ladder, Brian Rosenfeld, and Robert Diaz. And most of these we never even heard of before we began researching. I don't know anything about these guys other than the fact that they've seen their names now. Mm -hmm. And a few tidbits we picked up delving deep into the second cast, the younger the nurse involved in murder, the more abnormal the killer appears, and that's male or female. Granted, that's in the eye of the beholder and only after some investigation. And we also learned that unlike other serial killers, there's no onset age for nurses to begin killing. They range from as young as Sharika Rainey of Dallas, who began killing patients at age 17, up through Palm Beach, Florida's James Mullins, who started at age 56. And many of the arrested nurses claim to be acting out of mercy that the patient killed was suffering. The act of killing came from compassion. However, when examining the patient histories, Many were not suffering. They were not in misery. They were recovering, and they're looking for being discharged. Actual motives from these people range from acquiring power and control, sexual thrill, acquiring material possessions and wealth, and easing ones with workload. Yeah. Yeah. Reduce the amount of work you have to do in a night. Can you imagine? Oh, you mean I have, you know, six patients, I'm just going to bump off two, and now I only have four. Cut my workload. But they did. It's kind of a shitty example, but the dump patient that Graeber references, where that was Charlie's only patient of the night, it's kind of a shitty example, but the dump patient that Graeber references, where that was Charlie's only patient of the night, she was probably going to die. Charlie just forced the issue, and he was able to go home. So, something we're going to delve into here is a nurse, Donald Harvey. Oh, this crazy case. He was born on April 15, 1952, in Butler County, Ohio, and shortly after his birth, his family moved to a small hamlet of Boonesville, Kentucky, which is where he grew up. Quiet, reserved kid, well-liked by his teachers. Uh, It does appear his parents fought frequently, but come on, that's not a big, unusual characteristic. I mean, lots of kids have parents who argue. This is extremely telling as extensive internet researches do not reveal the father's identity. This time. Mm-hmm. His mother, Goldie Harvey, recalled that her son was brought up in a loving family environment. <clears throat> yeah, she said, my son has always been a good boy. Now, I think his mother might have been in denial because one of the psychiatrists who worked with Harvey reported that he had been sexually abused as a child. And while the vast, vast 
majority of children who are abused do not go on to become serial killers? Harvey, unfortunately, did. Now, former classmates of Harvey describe him as a loner, a teacher's pet. Martha D. Turner, who had been Donald's elementary school principal for eight years, commented in an interview with the Cincinnati Post, quote, Donnie was a very special child to me. He was always clean, well-dressed, with his hair trimmed. He was a handsome boy with big brown eyes, dark curly hair, always had a smile for me. There was never any indication of any abnormality. Well, that's always the case, right? Yeah, it's always... Oh, the guy next door, he was always so nice. Yeah, always hits you like a ton of bricks when you find out who these people really are. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Donald did well at Louisville High School. He earned all A's and B's, but he did grow bored and he dropped out prior to graduation. And when living in Cincinnati, where he worked a factory job, his mother called and asked him to return home and visit his ailing uncle who was in Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. When this innocent suggestion would change Harvey's life dramatically and those of dozens of other human beings... Harvey found that he liked the hospital atmosphere, and the employees liked Harvey. And when he described the drudgery of factory work to a staff nun, she suggested he apply for an orderly job. He was hired the very next day, and he instantly became indispensable. Spending hours with patients, he performed regular orderly duties such as patient hygiene, but he soon was also allowed to dispense medications and even insert catheters. He quickly became a trusted member of the healthcare staff. Three months later, Donald Harvey murdered his first victim. And according to Donald Harvey, he went in to check on stroke victim Logan Evans, and the disoriented man robbed his ministries. I'd be mad too. I would too. That's not fun. But I get it. But enraged, Harvey smothered him with a pillow. I would not have smothered him with a pillow. No, that's not always my first reaction. Nope. Gross, pissed off, yes. Smothering, no. Nope. And in a 1997 interview with a Cincinnati newspaper reporter, Harvey said he had become angry and lost all control. And he said, quote, The next thing I knew, I'd smothered him. It was like it was the last straw. I just lost it. I went in to help the man, and he wants to rub that in my face. And after showering, the dutiful orderly reported an apparent death. See, sadly, patients do die in hospitals. And your first thought is not, did you smother the patient, Donald? And that's why this is so hard and why Charlie might have as many as 400 kills. It's those IV bottles that he sent out there like grenades. That haunts my sleep. It really does. It's bothered the hell out of me. Well, here we have Donald Harvey now. Donald finds this experience of total power over another human being appealing. He is a hedonist. He got pleasure from killing, and on June 22, 1970, just three weeks later, he kills Elizabeth Wyatt in a particularly ghoulish way. He disconnects her oxygen and watched her suffocate to death. Wyatt was sick, elderly, unhappy, and she was said to be praying for death. So Harvey, later, he's going to justify his action, saying it was a mercy killing. So not one out of anger. No. He said the first one. No, this one is, he's found he enjoys this. That's what it comes down to. But again, no one at the hospital questioned her death. However, it really does seem convenient that she was praying for death. Mm -hmm. Was she really? Or is he just saying that now? 
or just an easy one for him to get away with. Yeah, he's rationalizing. Less than 20 days after killing Elizabeth Wyatt, Donald Harvey murdered a man named Eugene McQueen. Due to his medical condition, McQueen was not supposed to be laid on his stomach. Did Harvey even care? Not one little bit, because what does he do? He rolls Mr. McQueen over, and he allowed him to drown in his own body fluids. And that's terrifying in a sense, too, that just touching someone basically in the wrong way, rolling them over, that's the end. You have to exert any effort, basically. Poor man, I can hear him yelling inside his own head. It just is disturbing. Now, in order to cover up his third murder, Donald proceeds to take McQueen into the bathtub and tell the nurse that, you know, he's not looking too good. And the nurse tells him to continue, so he bathes this freshly dead man. And after this, for some time to come, Harvey is going to be made fun of by the hospital staff for bathing a dead man by hand. That's something that Harvey is going to take in stride, because they didn't know the whole story here. They don't know... (laughs) Definitely a red flag, right? They don't know that this is a really sinister event, and the hospital didn't question what happened. And Harvey is going to be free to kill for years to come. Now, we can only speculate that the boy who always kept himself neat and clean and subservient to authority found something really empowering in murder. And if it's true that he was abused as a child, then I am very much inclined to believe that he was. That someone dominated him when he was vulnerable and unable to defend himself. Now, Harvey is all-powerful. And he liked this position much better. He liked causing pain in others because he had been hurt as a child. And now it's their turn to suffer. Just as he had suffered being powerless, he's the powerful one now. It's his turn. And within the next year, Harvey killed more than a dozen patients. And whether it was out of boredom or a keen instinct for self-preservation, Harvey experimented with various methods. These included suffocation with plastic bags, injections with lethal doses of morphine, and in an exceptionally brutal case, Harvey became angered by a physically resisted patient. He spent hours plotting cruel revenge and returned late that night to insert a coat hanger through the man's catheter and puncture the victim's bladder. That elderly man succumbed to the resulting infection three days later. That's... Awful. This is horrible. And I can certainly understand why even one of our own book club members can't even get through the Charles Collin book. Oh, I understand. This is terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's it's the helplessness. Yeah. These people are sick. They don't have their strength. They don't have their voices. They they're just lying there and they're helpless. And these people are supposed to be helping them. That's what just just oh just disturbs me so much. And on March 31st, 1971, an inebriated, so a drunken Donald Harvey was arrested for burglary. Now listen, listen to this. He spilled out an incoherent tale of multiple murders to the officers. So he's talking while intoxicated. And somehow, despite investigation and a confession, the police felt no substantial evidence was developed and Harvey was charged and convicted only of a petty theft. And although the local justice thought of him as a troubled young man, 
you just got by with a $50 fine. What? What the? Again, I say, what? 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 So, apparently, he felt the need for a change of scene and he enlisted in the Air Force. I don't know if killing got to be too much for him or what happened. Oh, I think he realized he spilled his guts and he better get out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, guess what? His checkered past caught up with him. And when the U.S. Air Force heard of the murder confessions and decided an uncontested general discharge was an efficient way to rid themselves of future problems, that's just what happened. Less than a year later, he was a, a civilian. Yeah. So, at this point, Harvey becomes clinically depressed. He voluntarily committed himself to the VA Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. He was released after just a few weeks, but life outside a facility was just too much, and he asked to commit himself again. Now, this time while in the hospital, he attempted suicide. And, yeah, the VA doctor's response was a series of 21 electroconvulsive shock treatments, also known as ECT, and and a, a quick discharge. Now, ECT has been used effectively since the 1940s. Today, ECT is utilized in cases of treatment-resistant depression, some cases of psychosis and catatonia, and in some medicated patients who still have severe symptoms. And um, ECT is approximately 80% effective in good candidates. Generally today, you get between 6 and 10 treatments, not 21 as Harvey was given in the 1970s. And I think this was after the period where they giving some ECT and then lobotomizing patients. But not a good idea. Yeah, no, lobotomy is definitely a bad idea. Yeah. So after the discharge, Donald takes a job as a nurse's aide at two different private hospitals in Lexington from June 1973 to August 1974. So the hospital is legitimately his home. Mm-hmm. He did not kill anyone during that time. Uh, Harvey said in later interviews that he kept control of any homicidal impulses during his tenure there. Do you believe that? Yeah, because I think they probably would have gone through the records just to double check. I feel like he talked a little bit too, so he might have confessed to that. Yeah. So on returning to Cincinnati, he quickly found work as a nurse's aide at the VA Medical Hospital. And now that he was back in a multifaceted patient care facility, he did not keep his murder impulses in check. And over the next 10 years, he's going to murder at least 15 patients. Serial murderers go through this process of research and development, refining techniques and methods based on trial and error, and methods that work and satisfy their psychological needs are are retained and adapted as needed. So Harvey's going to use a plethora of methods here as he progressed from mundane housekeeping duties to nurse assistant and then cardiac catheterization technician. He's going to use the suffocation with the plastic bags and wet towels. He got creative here. Yeah, injection of poison by hypodermic needles and IV drips, concealment of poison in food and beverages, Poisons employed included cyanide, arsenic, and rat poison. He maintains fastidious records of his kills and consulted medical journals 
to find the best way to conceal his crimes. That doesn't seem very smart to me. He's working it, though. He's really, really working it. He's massaging techniques. He's really working out all the kinks. Yeah, so not only at work, but in his private life, too, these murderous impulses just kind of carry over. And he actually, he becomes involved in these disputes with two of his neighbors. And using food and drink, as Jill just mentioned, fatally poisoned one woman, Helen Metzger, with arsenic and sickened another woman with hepatitis serum. And by this time, Harvey was seeking domestic happiness, and he actually moved in with his lover, Carl Howler. So yes, a man. But Bliss did not live long, and as Harvey was suspecting Carl was cheating on him, felt the need to do something. So, so what do you do? You have a conversation? Yeah. No, you, you slip them arsenic. <laughs> Keep them inside, of course. Oh, God. Yeah, you, you don't have a conversation about that. You just give them some arsenic. Put in that little hot cocoa. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a lovely story from the late 1800s. They discovered with Liz Gordon. Yeah. Um, Harvey also strongly disapproved of Carl's parents and acted out his feelings by even fatally poisoning Henry Howler, Carl's father, and also attempting to kill Carl's mother with repeated small doses of arsenic. No, we're just sharing the love, huh? So you have a Carl? You got a clue, Carl? <laughs> but by January 1984, Carl gets fed up and he asks Donald to move out. Good move. Right? Yeah. Good, good move. move. <laughs> but unsurprisingly, Donald took the rejection badly and spent the next few years attempting to kill Carl. It appears they did share meals on occasion. WTF, Carl. Carl. So I get those walk dead memes in my head as I say Carl. Carl. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, and on one of these occasions where they pleasantly shared a meal together, Donald slipped enough arsenic into Carl's food to require hospitalization. Get it then, Carl? Carl is just a good guy who just couldn't believe this of his lover and even ex-lover. He just, he just didn't see it. It's like most people, you just, you just don't believe it's going to happen. Yeah. You don't believe that's what it is until you figure it out. Now, I got a, I got a fun fact coming up for you, Joe. And oh. you'll, you'll hear it when you hear it. Oh, boy. On July 18, 1985, an alert security guard thought something was out about Harvey Satchel, and he stopped him just before he exited for the day. And a search bag revealed a 38 caliber revolver, hypodermic needles, a cocaine spoon, and a biography of serial killer Charles Sobrage the Servant, one of Asia's most notorious serial killers. Remember that book? Oh, I do. We read Serpentine for book club, and mind you, I kept track of the word Serpentine throughout that book, and man, that was a journey. Ooh. Ooh, that was a good one. So Serpentine, I forget who the author is, but we can post that. Yep. Holy mackerel. But so he had all these things on him, and I remember that last $50 fine that he got for confessing to murder. Mm-hmm. Oh, he got another $50 fine for carrying a firearm on federal property. Uh, he was asked to resign, and his personnel record was going to get kept clean. Ding, 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 red flag administration. Mm-hmm. And no other investigation was done. No other investigation. Just going to clean up his records and just let him go, and the problem can move on to some other medical facility. Sweep it under the rug. Yeah. 
All right. So backed by his glowing resume, Harvey finds work at Drake Memorial Hospital in Cincinnati and completely unaware of who they hired because there's no red flags anywhere to be seen. Drake promotes him from a part-time aide to a full-time nurse's aide, and Harvey proceeds to murder an additional 23 patients over the next 13 months. Now, methods Donald uses are the hypodermic injections of arsenic, cyanide, and even liquid cleanser, as well as his old standby suffocation. He also at least once disconnects life support machines. So in April 1987, hospital management became suspicious when a patient named John Powell, who was recovering from a motorcycle accident, suddenly died out of the blue. Finally, they're getting suspicious. Finally. At autopsy, the coroner detects an odor of burnt almonds. Okay, murder bookies, what's with the odor of almonds? Hmm? Almonds? Cyanide. The only conclusion is that there was cyanide present in Mr. Powell's body. So law enforcement's called in. They learned that Donald's hospital nickname was the Angel of Death. Who has that nickname? Ooh. What's that called? That is that a is that a red flag? Did Catherine Ramsland tell us to look for that red flag? There it is, red flag, Catherine Ramsland. So Donald Harvey now becomes the focus of the resulting police investigation. A search warrant is obtained for his apartment, and they find mountains of evidence, including jars of cyanide, arsenic, and his murder diary. Jesus. Thank you so much, Donald, for writing down all the details for the police. So, Harvey is arrested on one count of aggravated murder and held in lieu of a $200,000 bail. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. The police begin looking at other suspicious deaths. Now, Harvey in jail realizes that he is done. It is over. August 11th, 1987, he confesses to 33 murders and then adds a you know, few here and there and the list grows to 70. The prosecutors, who are completely aghast, call in a few different psychiatrists to do an evaluation and all of them pronounce him sane and competent. And this is where they were able to confirm that Donald had been sexually abused by his uncle Wayne and an older male neighbor when he was between four and nine years of age. In the case against Donald Harvey, the prosecutor said that he was a compulsive killer, that he builds up tension in his body, so he kills people. Now, this sounds a bit like Charlie Cullen to me. When his life was in turmoil, when he was stressed out, his compulsions came on strong and he killed repeatedly, like spiking the IV bags, like the grenades that he'd send out. Yeah. Yes, that's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. So on August 18, 1987, Donald Harvey pled guilty to 24 counts of aggravated murder and later 25, then four counts of attempted murder and one count of felonious assault. He received a total of four consecutive 20-year-to-life sentences and was fined $270,000. Later, he was also indicted in Kentucky, where he pled guilty to 12 additional murders at Marinette. And lastly, in February of 1988, he pled guilty to three additional homicides in Cincinnati and three attempted homicides. 
quote, he's no mercy killer. And that's from Arthur M. Nay Jr., the Ohio prosecutor who handled his case. And he told the court in 1987, he killed because he liked to kill. Yeah, he did. Facts. And in a 1991 interview with a reporter from the Columbus Dispatch, Hardy gave a rare glimpse into his mindset. He was asked, why did you kill? And Harvey replied, well, people controlled me for 18 years, and then I controlled my own destiny. I controlled other people's lives, whether they lived or died. I had that power to control. Well, the reporter asked, what right did you have to decide that? And Harvey said, after I didn't get caught for the first 15, I thought it was my right. I appointed myself judge, prosecutor, and jury, so I played God. He explained it very clearly. Yes, very succinct. Yeah. This not getting caught reinforces Harvey's belief that he is the smartest guy in the room, and that included the doctors. You know, he is uh, highly intelligent. He, he must be highly intelligent because he would have been caught. And if he hadn't been caught, well, there you are. Mm-hmm. He must be supposed to continue on with this. Same That's kind. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, clearly. It, this is the same kind of mindset that Charlie had, and so they keep killing. It reinforced the belief that he had the right to do this. He could exercise his will onto others, just as he had experienced, and now it is his turn. And Donald Harvey explained his success thusly, quote, Most of the doctors would be so overworked, so busy, that a patient could die, and the family doctor would not come in and pronounce the person dead. They'd have a resident do it. And they'd pronounce him dead and send him straight to the funeral home. Harvey also unburdened himself on doctors. Quote, the doctors go and they spend all these years in school, he said, and they'd always come in with this kind of superior attitude. You know, the I know everything, but they didn't know nothing. <laughs> no comments. Uh, too easy. Uh, one can, you know, hear the anger and the resentment of the abused child, you know, a child who had even with so many entirely innocent people that he's taking it out on. We only wish that that kind of empathy existed within Donald Harvey to balance this bitter indignation. Oh, good Lord. Okay, so it's just so many. And fun fact, on July 23rd, 2001, the Associated Press printed an article listing the worst serial killers in the United States. Donald Harvey was rated number one. One! followed by John Wayne Gacy, Patrick Kearney, Bruce Davis, and Dean Correll. Harvey would have loved this. Well, too bad he was dead. Yeah. John March 28, 2017, so a few years before that poll came out, authorities reported that Harvey had been found in his cell severely beaten by a fellow inmate. And two days later, he died of the wounds that James Elliott inflicted upon him. And inmate number A199449 would have had his first parole hearing in April 2043. That's a long time. And a testament to what multiple convictions for aggravated murder will bring you. And on May 3rd, 2019, James Elliott was charged with aggravated murder and other charges related to the death of Donald Harvey. Details of the murder and possible motivation have not been released and the trial is pending. So if we hear anything, definitely bring it up. So next, our second killer that we have is Gasuki Mori. 
On January 6, 2001, Mori, age 29, a Japanese assistant nurse was arrested at home on suspicion of attempted murder. He worked at the Hokuro Clinic in Yagi Prefecture of Sendai, Japan for 22 months, since March 1999. Having already been fired, Mori was arrested for attempting to kill an 11-year-old girl. She had complained of stomach pain, and her parents brought her to the 18-bed clinic for help. She was examined, and it was believed she had appendicitis. Mori began an eye drip as she was ready for surgery. But within an hour, it went badly as she relapsed into a coma. Mori had laced her eyes with a muscle relaxant, the coronium bromide. That! We know that. We all know it. Same one that Charlie used. It's a paralytic, remember? And as of 2004, she remained in a coma. And throughout his tenure at the Ogiro Clinic, at least eight patients had died under odd circumstances. Mori was nicknamed Fast Change Mori by the other nurses, given how quickly the conditions of his patients altered, most deteriorating rapidly. Red flag. Mm-hmm. His colleagues suspected something was amiss, but none spoke up. And this is exactly why Catherine Ramsland points this out. Nickname with red flag. Mm-hmm. Now, it was hard finding information on him, but I did find some. Morian was born April 28, 1971, the son of a Japanese police officer and wow. his wife. Can you imagine what his poor parents have gone through? As a youth and into adulthood, he studied judo, and he competed in the Oahu International Association Japanese Tournament in 1996. Now, Mori was social. He did have friends and acquaintances. He lived in a modest apartment with his girlfriend. However, Mori had reportedly told police that his girlfriend breaking up with him and moving out of the apartment they shared was a trigger for his decision to murder patients. According to the Daily Yomiuri newspaper, Mori indicated that, quote, many causes of frustration, end quote, and his irritation with colleagues contributed to his stress level and anxiety. You see, they hadn't given him the schedule that worked for him. Oh, so you just go kill people. Yes, yes. So this frustration, this resentment, resulted in his attempted murder of this 11-year-old girl with appendicitis. Daisuke's work history with his patients was examined, and it was uncovered that he had attempted to kill at least four patients and possibly more. The police are certain that he succeeded in killing an 89-year-old woman, Yukiko Shimoyama, on November 28, 2000. On November 15th, Mrs. Shimoyama had been admitted into the clinic with a fever and put on an IV drip. Her condition had improved enough for her to eat rice porridge with banana, and, you know, she was looking forward to going back to the nursing home where she had been living contentedly, like for the last decade. And things took a dramatic turn for the worse on November 24th, when Maury changed her IV bag. And it was thought that she had died of a heart attack, but later, guess what was found in her blood samples? VEC. And it was turned out that she had, in fact, been murdered. Now, the Izumi police in the Prefect continued to look back to see who Mori had treated, and the Daily Yomiuri reported in 2001 that a four-year-old boy who was in the hospital at the time suddenly took a turn for the worse. His lab report found he'd been treated with a muscle relaxant. A one-year-old girl and a 45-year-old man were also victims of Mori's attempts at murder. The previous August, a five-year-old asthmatic boy on an IV had gone into a respiratory failure. 
and just after his mother left to go get him some clean clothes. He died in an ambulance and route to a municipal hospital after being treated with an IV placed by Maury. So just imagine this poor woman, this mother of a young boy, she just left and he took a nosedive, had been rushed to another hospital for better care, and he never made it. And she wasn't there because she had gone to get him some clothes. I'm not a mother. I can't imagine. But that's absolutely god awful. I am. If I had just stayed, I could have been there at least to be with him when he died if I couldn't save him. Oh, I just, oh, it just makes me sick. Sad. Horrible. And so this is when the Japanese police decided they had enough evidence for an arrest warrant, even if the case was circumstantial. Mori was taken, held, and interrogated for a lengthy period, and finally confessing, though he later recanted that confession. And now, again, we realize that most cases of this sort are circumstantial. They're very difficult to solve, even with the advances that we've made in forensics today. Mm-hmm. They're tough to prove, just as the FBI told Tim Brown and Danny Baldwin in Charlie Collins' case. And at trial, the prosecution introduces evidence of the fact that Beck was found in the blood serum, urine, and IV bottles of the five patients. Judge Hideki Hatanaka scolded the prosecution for using up all the samples during their testing of the evidence, but he accepted this as valid evidence anyways. So, yeah, testing evidence can be a risky move, especially if you don't have a lot of material in the first place. But you do risk it, right? It did show that he was using inappropriate drugs that did cause the respiratory arrest, so you kind of had to. So it paid off. Prosecution was also able to present as evidence the fact that Maury had placed more drug orders for muscle relaxants than required. What does that sound like? Um, sounds like our Charlie. Oh, yeah. And did Maury have a history of canceling orders, too? Makes us wonder. But. But, but. But. Go figure. The clinic had a terrible, terrible record-keeping system, which contributed to Maury getting away with murder for several years. The administration, thankfully, at Hope Hero Clinic, was held accountable. Maury's defense attorney, they claimed that Maury was coerced into confessing, that the hospital was hiding medical malpractice, that they were using Maury as a scapegoat, and that the illnesses and deaths were caused by medication side effects. This did not fly. Judge Hatanaka found Maury guilty of all counts. The Japanese Times quoted him as saying, quote, The patient's condition suddenly changed because muscle relaxants were injected into their bodies, and he condemned Maury's behavior as, quote, unprecedented crimes committed under the disguise of medical treatments that might have gone undetected if he had not committed them in a series. And Judge Hatanaka further said that Maury's innocent pleas, and I love this part, aggravated the plight of the victims and their families. Just go right to the heart of it and say, you are, you're terrible. You're just mm-hmm. terrible. And the situation even warranted consideration of capital punishment. I mean, Judge, boom. Just take that. There it is. Now, ultimately, Maury is sentenced to life. He does appeal multiple times, and they were all shot down. The the Hokorio Clinic, it closes three months after Daisaki Mori's arrest due to a sharp decline in patient numbers. Ya think? I wouldn't go there. That wouldn't happen here, it seems. <laughs> yeah, uh, no way would I set foot in that place. Yeah. 
So last heard, he is still in prison, and may he rot there. Where he should be. Yep. So lastly, we come to Richard Angelo. Now, Richard was born on August 29, 1962, to Joseph and Alice Angelo in Long Island, New York. He's in New Yorker. And Joseph is a high school guidance counselor. Alice is a home economics teacher. And Richard is going to be the only child that they have together. And as a young man, he is helpful. He's doing good things for others. He actually achieves the Eagle Scout rank while in high school at St. John the Baptist Diocesan. Fun fact. So achieving Eagle Scout is a really admirable feat. So from 1912 to 2017, only 2% of eligible Scouts achieve this rank. They are now admitting Girl Scouts to becoming Eagle Scouts, which was interesting. Pretty good. I heard that fairly recently. Anyway, Richard also serves as a volunteer fireman. So again, liking to help other people seems to be kind of a theme that we've heard. Yeah, helping other people medically, mm-hmm. not medically, all over the place. Mm-hmm. So Angelo, again, like we said, he went to St. John the Baptist High School, which ironically was located right next to Good Samaritan Hospital, which would later serve as his killing ground. And Angelo graduated high school in 1980, and he made his way to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, SUNY Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. And that was after 12 years of Catholic schooling. So after two years, he transferred to SUNY Farmington to complete a two-year nursing program. And just as he proved himself in high school with the Scouts, he made the Dean's List every semester. Definitely a high achiever. No dummy. No dummy. Smart. Um, He kept a low profile on campus. He graduated with his nursing degree in May of 1985. And neither professors nor administrators had recalled anything outstanding about Angelo while he attended SUNY Farmington. Not good, not bad. And the chair of the Farmington Department of Nursing told a New York Times reporter that Richard was a B student who graduated in good standing. He took a job in the bone unit of the Nassau County Medical Center and after a year transferred to Brunswick Hospital in Amityville, Suffolk County. And let it be known, there's no unusual deaths at either of those institutions while he worked there. It's good to know. Very good. Mm-hmm. But in January of the following year, Richard's parents retired and moved to Florida. So a long way from New York, Snowbirds. Good for them. Congratulations. Yes, congratulations. That's like pure retirement right there. Great. Mm -hmm. So you you want to achieve. But possibly as the firmly bonded only child, Richard quit his job and moved to Florida with them. Florida with my parents. No, I don't know that I'd want my kids to come with me to my retirement paradise. I love them, but I raised them to leave and come back and visit, not move as a unit for the rest of our lives. You don't want them living with you for eternity all the time? No. Does that make me a bad mom? I want them to live on their own and have their own lives and be independent and prosperous and wonderful and healthy and normal. That's a being an adult, and adulting is all about. Oh, yeah. Everybody needs their own space, but apparently Richard didn't want his. Oh, but dear. he was 25, he was established in his professional body. So, why did he move? Did he have dependency issues? Was it hard to be away from his parents like that? Could have been, 
but three months later, he was back in New York. Hmm. We don't know why. We can only speculate, but there we are. Just like we talked about, maybe mom and dad made it clear that retirement was for them and them alone, leaving no room for him except to come visit. Did they buy in a 55 and older community? Which might have been a hint. <laughs> Get out. You're 25, not 55. I, yeah, just saying. Yeah. You know. So, anyway, he moves back to New York, and he rents a one-bedroom apartment, and he did get a job doing the graveyard shift at an intensive care unit at Good Samaritan Hospital. Which, again, was right across from his high school. Right. So he's very familiar with this area. This is definitely comfort zone here. Now, profiles who later study the phenomenon of healthcare serial killers are going to establish that they do seek out these sparsely staffed shifts with patients in extreme and therefore vulnerable conditions. So working the 11 to 7 a.m. shift in intensive care is exactly the right venue. And these are, of course, red flags that Dr. Ramsland pointed out. Red flags everywhere. Yeah, they're there. Now, past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, and just as he had crossed the street at St. John's High School, Richard establishes himself as a dependable, quiet presence. It does sound a bit like Charlie now, the ever-helpful guy, right? He gains the trust of the doctors and the nurses in the unit, and as in any profession, with trust comes autonomy. So he's quickly promoted to shift supervisor. And in his brief six months tenure at Good Samaritan, the graveyard shift experiences 37 code blue emergencies. And only 12 of these patients are going to survive. Now, Richard Angelo is what profiles call a malignant hero. The subject endangers the victim's life in some way and then proceeds to save them. So some feigned attempts at, at resuscitation, all the while knowing that their victim is already dead and beyond help. But they seem to make this selfless effort at reviving them. I read this fascinating paper by John Field, PhD, called Caring to Death, a discursive analysis of nurses who murder. It was his dissertation at the University of Adelaide in Down Under in Australia. According to him, Dr. Field, Richard Angelo is a thrill killer. He became excited. He experienced an adrenaline rush during these medical emergencies and became an adrenaline junkie. So he would seek that high again and again. So seeking to rescue and revive and get the praise and the hero worship that came in the aftermath. So similar to Charlie, but hopefully his emotions and the way he was acting is a little bit more in shock because if you recall, Charlie would come in, rush in, play the hero, but he wasn't exhibiting like the proper ways that somebody doing this would exhibit the particular emotions. Well, his emotions were flat, and he was like straddling, remember, straddling the patient and pumping yeah. away and pounding on their chest with his fists. And yeah, he was a little off. He was evidently more more professional mm-hmm. in trying to the end the behavior to revive. Certainly not in behavior and causing the need to revive. And unlike Don, unlike Donald Harvey, Richard Angelo had just one method of assault. He injected his victim with Pavilon, 
pancuronium bromide, which is another muscle relaxant used as an aid to intubating patients and as one component in general anesthesia. This clinical profile is identical to that of VEC. We know VEC, mm-hmm. which was, again, the chosen tool of uh, the Sukimori and Charles Cullen. The only difference is that the pancuronium bromide has just 70% of the potency of uh, VEC. Okay. And as related, only 12 of his self-created code blue victims survived. Mm. So Richard Angelo's crime spree has a strange similarity to that of Jessica Mori. In both cases, sloppy administrative practices were integral to the murderer's success. In Mori's case, the clinic that employed him lacked a licensed pharmacist to monitor and dispense medications to employees. In Angelo's case, though, the New York State Health Department concluded after the investigation that, quote, shortcomings in the hospitals, Good Samaritan, quality assurance system rendered the facility unable to detect potential patient care problems, such as misadministration of medications, end quote. The health department further stated that though a number of cases involved Good Samaritan patients dying suddenly for no reason, the hospital's record-keeping was so poor they could find no direct evidence linking the nurse under suspicion, Richard Angelo, with the deaths. However, they did figure they might have had something in an assault perpetrated on patient Gerolamo Kusik. Yeah. Shame on the hospital again. Come on, guys. Yeah. We've seen this time and time again. Come on now. All right. So Richard, the good, hardworking nurse, now shift supervisor at Good Samaritan ICU, approached the sleeping patient towards the end of his shift on October 11th, 1987. He awakened Mr. Kusik and inquired as to how he felt. And Mr. Kusick, who's 75 years old, had been admitted several days before for severe chest pains. And in his testimony at trial, Kusick, who is a native of Yugoslavia, now it's been broken up into other countries, so it's Serbia and Croatia and Montenegro, so I'm not sure exactly which, which of these new countries, which of these republics he's from, but at the time it was Yugoslavia. He said, I say not bad. Uh, He opened up his coat and he pulled something out that looked like a pen. And then he says, now you're going to feel much better. The man, he continued, then inserted a needle into his intravenous tubing. At once, I feel cold liquid running, he said, and I became dead. I couldn't move my muscles. But he was able to summon help. And Mr. Kusick testified that before he became completely paralyzed, he was able to press the buzzer to summon his nurse, Lauren Ball, who began resuscitating him. It's terrifying. Oh, oh, it creeps me out. Alarmed by this unexpected near-death event, the hospital examined the contents of Mr. Kusick's IV tubing and discovered the traces of the pavulon, the medication never prescribed to him, and then asked who would have administered this. And Mr. Kusick described a heavy-set bearded man who only could have been Richard Angelo. He was arrested on November 15th while attending an EMT convention in Albany, New York. During the ride back to Suffolk County, Angelo confessed to injecting a non-prescribed dangerous medication to patients and agreed to a videotaped confession. And this was... Yeah, it must have been an interesting ride. And believe me, they videotaped this immediately on his arrival. Richard Angelo was indicted on four counts of murder in the second degree 
and three counts of assault. Once arrested, Angelo, though financially able, refused to post his $50,000 bail for fear of community retaliation. Yeah, I wouldn't post that either. He's safer in jail. Yeah. yeah. And after two years of trial preparation, during which prosecutors exhumed the bodies of 33, 33 <sighs> former Good Samaritan patients to test for Pavilion, the jury trial opened. Prosecutors were frustrated because, though Pavilion was detected in several bodies, the hospital's records system was bad, and they couldn't connect the deaths to Angela. Sound familiar? Yes, it should. But opening arguments began October 19, 1989, and prosecutor John Collins portrayed Angelo as a, quote, monster dressed in nurses' whites, end quote. And Collins said Angelo conducted uncontrolled experimentation to put patients at death's door in order to improve his image. And defense attorney Eric W. Neighbor conceded that Angelo injected patients, but insisted that the deaths were unanticipated consequences and not murder. So why are you injecting people in the first place with random things? With a paralytic? Yes. <laughs> it was definitely an uphill battle for Neighbor, who was Richard Angelo's uh, defense attorney. He apparently realized after the 45 minutes of Mr. Cusick's and Nurse Lorenbaugh's testimony that the fight was really over. And two psychologists actually testified for the prosecution had had a personality disorder left but that he could understand the likely consequence of his actions. And a psychiatrist who was actually slated to testify for the defense was not permitted to appear, as he planned to use a polygraph in his presentation, which the judge had forbade. Yeah, polygraphs aren't admittable. No, why even take them? And Charlie bragged about taking two of them and passing. He knew how to beat a live doctor test, even though it wasn't really relevant. Right. But the jury deliberated for seven days and on December 14th, 1989, returned a guilty verdict, which convicted Angelo of two counts of murder, one of manslaughter, one of criminally negligent homicide, and one of assault. Well, thank God for that, right? Mm -hmm. Seven days to deliberate, though. Seven days. Circumstantial evidence, these things are happening through. Yeah. So, what do we make out of all this? Well, Charlie's case being the most recent, we do know a few things. Shortly after the criminal trial, there were civil suits filed against the hospitals that Charlie worked at. No great surprise, right? Americans are great at civil suits. And all of these suits were settled out of court. So you know what that means. Okay, everything is sealed, non-disclosure agreements, can't talk about it, yada, yada, yada. In the case of the administrators that kept Charlie Collins' misdeeds under wraps... No criminal charges were ever filed against them. How unfortunate. Yeah, no words. Yeah. All right, the New Jersey State Legislature did pass two new measures as a direct result of the crimes perpetrated by Cullen. Thank you. Yes, here's where government actually came through. Uh, The first was the Patient Safety Act of 2004, which, quote, increased the responsibility of hospitals to report all serious preventable adverse events that occur at the healthcare facilities to the Department of Health and Senior Services. Right, this is followed by the Enhancement Act of 2005, which required hospitals to report to the Division of Consumer Affairs 
which includes the nursing board, certain limited facts about healthcare professionals at their facilities, and to keep records of all complaints, disciplinary actions related to the care of their patients for a period of seven years. So no misplaced or destroyed files for seven years. Okay, it should be longer as far as I'm concerned, but I'll take it. It's better than we lost the file last week and it's gone and we don't know anything. I'm just not going to tell you that files exist forever and ever, only 30 days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, because these healthcare killers, they do bounce from hospital to hospital to hospital. I'll take it. It's, you know, it's something. The act also goes on to state that if a facility is in compliance with the above acts, they would not be found liable for anything that could potentially happen within their walls. However, there's always that catch. There's always a loophole. There's no penalty for a hospital's failure to comply. So you're not liable if you follow and comply, but there's no penalty if you don't. You got it. But I guess that means you can still file a civil suit. God forbid something else happens. Listen, it's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. They do make changes as a result. So what about our heroes of the story, like Charles Collins? So Tim Braun went on to retire after Charlie was convicted. He opened his own PI firm specializing in healthcare murder, became really good at it. He also volunteers with a national task force in catching child killers. Good for him. I know. And Danny Baldwin, he left the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office and eventually retired. He also opened his own PI firm and went on to become an adjunct professor of criminal justice. Both Danny and Tim received a top cop award from the National Association of Police Organizations, both giving thanks to Agent Amy. Yeah, Agent Amy. Is Amy Logren. Well, she quit nursing. Go figure. All trust shattered. She felt insanely responsible, especially with Charlie doing this on her watch. But she went on to work as a hypnotist and a past life regression therapist. So you remember how she would kind of settle into these states of, like, dreaming that were kind of, like, reliving events, and she was able to kind of see things. So I think this definitely suits her really, really well. And Gregor notes that the publication of this book notes the first time that Amy has actually been identified as Amy, as Agent Amy, the confidential informant responsible for bringing Charles Cullen in. I'm, I'm glad. We, yeah. should know, we should know what she did. Oh, absolutely. She was paramount to this investigation. Without her, this wouldn't have been solved. He wouldn't have confessed. She did an upper on him. Mm -hmm. She was good at what she did. And Graber ends the book just as the way we're going to end our episode. Amy still has not told Charlie that she was the confidential informant. Even though I'm sure he probably knows from this book. I hope she never has another conversation with him. As long as they both live. I know she still feels bad, and she still is like, the one part of him is still her friend, but... Yeah, I hope she's figured that one out. I hope so. Put it to rest, I do. And just one more note, this book and our series, our three episodes, have dealt with multiple instances of suicide, and we know we can all help prevent that. The Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress prevention, and crisis resources for you or your loved ones. 
and best practices for professionals. So if you need to talk or want to discuss any feelings that you might be having related to suicide, please call 1-800-273-TALK, or that's 1-800-273-8255. And that concludes our series on The Good Nurse by Charles Graber. Now, next time, we're going to be discussing Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Graham. You'll get everything in this one. Murder, mystery, intrigue, history, fun facts, so many details. Join us when we take a step back in time to the last remnants of the Wild West. Wealthy members of the Osage Indian Nation are being killed off under mysterious circumstances. Sparking an investigation with the FBI, led by young J. Edward Hoover and the former Texas Ranger Tom White, the two leave a team undercover and infiltrate a region using a new-fledged investigation technique to undercover a shocking conspiracy. This book is so good. I am so excited about it. I love it. And you know what? I don't even know who Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play, but I wonder if he'll reprise his role as J. I hope so. It's such a great story. I know. I love it. And I hope you guys all are enjoying it, too. I know some people are super excited about our upcoming series as they've already read the book. Yeah. So, Murder Bookies, everyone else just tuning in for the first time, thank you, thank you for listening. Uh, please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at jillandtara at com. We definitely love to hear from you. And follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. We're also on iHeartRadio. And let our episodes just pop right into your feed so you don't have to worry about finding us. And if you can or are able, please leave us a five-star review as we certainly love to see your feedback. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Enjoy, guys.